Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I wanted to say as we start out that if you would like to help support the work of OnScript and now our two spinoff podcasts, the Biblical World Podcast as well as In Parallel, our Poetry and Bible Podcast, uh, you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate and any bit would help that you could give toward that uh, to help sustain what we're doing and enable us to keep going into the future. And also, Ratings on the various platforms where you listen to this are also welcome. So, with that out of the way, I hope you really enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, our guests today are Dr. Brittany Kim and Dr. Charlie Trim, who have co-authored a book together called Understanding Old Testament Theology, Mapping the Terrain of Recent Approaches. In addition to co-authoring this book, Dr. Brittany Kim is an Old Testament scholar, adjunct professor of Old Testament at North Park Theological Seminary and Northeastern Seminary, and she's a spiritual director as well. And she's a co-director of Every Voice, an initiative for diversity in theological education. She's the author of Lengthening Your Tent Cords, The Metaphorical World of Israel's Household in the Book of Isaiah as well. Dr. Charlie Trim is Associate Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at Biola University and the author of The Destruction of the Canaanites, God, Genocide, and Biblical Interpretation, and Fighting for the King and the Gods, A Survey of Warfare in the Ancient Near East, which is a a whopping volume. And um, he's also a co-director of Every Voice. So Brittany and Charlie, welcome to OnScript. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been uh, great to get to know both of you a little bit um, over the past year, I guess, uh, working with you and Andrew King with Every Voice. And I thought maybe we could start out by highlighting the work that you're doing there and what Every Voice is all about. Yeah, the project began a few years ago when Brittany and I were working on a bibliography of Black Old Testament scholars. And uh, we found quite a few of them, and we were able to put it all into a document. And that bibliography is now on the website for Every Voice. And it's how many pages? <laughs> a lot. 170, <laughs> 170, I think. Yeah, it's a phenomenal resource. Definitely recommend it. Yeah. Sorry. And as we were looking at it, we realized that uh, very few of the scholars, at least in North America, were situated in evangelical institutions. And so that got us asking questions about why. um, And we started talking to many people. And uh, this is where, Matt, I think you got connected, where we started just having conversations to to see what was happening here. And we realized that if we're going to address uh, some of these things, it'd be best to create an independent entity. And so that's where every voice was started. And Andrew King was also a part of those conversations. And so we brought him on board as a director as well. Yeah. And what kinds of things are, is every voice up to these days? Well, quite a few things, but uh, I'll just highlight a few. So we continued working on bibliographies of works by Old Testament scholars of color. And we have some of those up on our website right now. We're, we're working to finalize those. 
But we're also trying to turn those into a searchable database so that professors or students or pastors who are looking for more diverse sources on a particular topic that they're studying can find those sources more easily. And then our hope is, is to find funding to expand that database into other fields as well. Um, and we're also really passionate about helping faculty to um, develop more inclusive pedagogies. And so we have some information on what inclusive pedagogies are. Uh, and we're also uh, starting a repository of examples like assignments or syllabi that reflect a more inclusive approach to teaching. Um, we only have a few examples on there right now, but we are soliciting more. So if you are listening right now and you have some assignments or syllabi that you think might fit, we would love for you to submit those to us on our website. Um, and then we're also starting a student group. So we have some wonderful student group leaders who are still in the process of developing vision, uh, but stay tuned for that. And if you're a student and you're interested, look on our website. We'd love to hear your feedback. Yeah. So just uh, Google search every voice. Uh, theology, and you'll find the website, or you could go to, I think it's everyvoicekingdomdiversity.org. Org. Yeah. Um, and you could you could type in the whole name if you want to that way. Um, <laughs> Brit yeah, thanks for sharing about that. Brittany, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your journey into the field of biblical studies and what maybe some of the formative experiences along the way for you. Yeah, sure. I grew up in a Christian home and learned to read and study the Bible from a young age. But when I went to college, I was really interested in diving in deeper. So I went to Westmont College in Santa Barbara and studied religious studies and philosophy. And I really loved my Bible classes. And then coming out of college, I thought that maybe I would try to teach Bible in a Christian high school or something. Uh, but the doors just didn't open. And I also started to miss the more rigorous intellectual environment of the college campus. And so I started thinking maybe I actually wanted to teach at the college level. That, of course, required a PhD. And I'd always loved learning, and I had thought I'd probably go on and do a master's at some point. But that was the first time I had considered a PhD, and it was pretty terrifying. <laughs> But, uh, but I started looking into options, and then I, I emailed a former professor, Karen Jobes, um, about schools, and she mentioned that she had moved to Wheaton and that they had a PhD program, and I looked into it and ended up going to Wheaton to do my master's and then also my PhD in Old Testament. And I remember sitting in uh, orientation for my master's program and feeling like a duck that had finally found a pond. Uh, and it just, I, I had that experience a lot of times in my studies. I also had other experiences where <laughs> I wasn't quite sh so sure I was going to finish, but. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think some of us have the duck finally finding the pond and sometimes the fish out of the water experiences, you know, um, maybe in the same day at times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Charlie, how about for you? What led you into taking up this uh, teaching and researching career in biblical studies? Uh, my um, educational career started out very differently. I was a chemistry undergrad, and then I worked as a chemist for two years uh, out of college. But then uh, during those years, I was working in youth ministry and really enjoyed it, and so decided to leave chemistry and go be a pastor. So I started getting a Master of Divinity, worked in a church for a while, and being in seminary helped me to see I love the academic part. Uh, and so 
when I finished the MDiv, I went and got a PhD at Wheaton um, in Old Testament with Dan Block and then got a job here at Biola. So it's not a direct route, uh, but ended up here eventually. Yeah, so uh, the two of you, um, I, I assume you began sort of thinking about, well, maybe that you probably didn't start thinking about a book uh, in your conversations, but I assume that the book Understanding Old Testament Theology came out of conversations you were having as doctoral students, right? Is that right? Yeah, the PhD program at Wheaton uh, definitely focused on biblical theology and trying to get the students in different disciplines interacting with um, data from other fields and students from other fields. And so uh, all of this kind of stuff was in the air for us um, in our program. Yeah, so I want to um, talk about your co-authored book, um, Understanding Old Testament Theology, Mapping the Terrain of Re Recent Approaches. Um, and then I want to talk to you both about your individual work, uh, Brittany and Isaiah and Charlie, with uh, violence and the conquest. So. Um, what were you aiming to do in this book, Understanding Old Testament Theology? The main goal for this book was to introduce people to the field. There are a lot of books called Old Testament Theology, and for the most part, they're really different. And so you have no idea what you're getting into when you start picking up a book and flipping through it if it's called Old Testament Theology. And because there's so many books and they tend to be so big, it's really hard to know where to start and what's happening in the field and so on. Uh, there, there was an overview book uh, by Gerhard Halsell that um, introduced people to the field, but the latest edition was 1991, I believe, and a lot has happened in the field since then. So the point of this was to introduce people to what was happening in Old Testament theology and have a, a place to start and hopefully whet people's appetite to read uh, some of these books. Yeah. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, Old Testament theology as a, as a discipline sits at the intersection of um, two major issues, as I, I see it at least, <clears throat> the, the challenge of unity and diversity in Scripture, and also the tension between making descriptive claims about the Bible's theology or theologies and making normative claims about what, you know, on the basis of scriptural claims God is actually like. So that's that's usually considered more in the systematic theology end of the spectrum. So how does biblical theology wrestle with those two issues of unity and diversity and that, that tension I described? Yeah, that's part of what leads to the different approaches that Charlie was talking about. They, they have different ways of answering those questions. Um, so uh, when it comes to the unity and diversity issue, um, you have on one side of the spectrum historical critical approaches and postmodern approaches that really emphasize the diversity in scripture. So they highlight uh, different perspectives um, and then often will, especially historical critical approaches, try to assign those different perspectives to different sources or redactional layers um, or to different factions or groups within the community. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, you have center approaches that are trying to relate everything in the Old Testament to one central theme and trying to find a unifying feature. Um, and, and then you have other approaches that fall somewhere in the middle, like a multiplex theology examines a variety of themes um, and, and tries to to give attention to diversity of content, at least within the Old Testament, although the extent to which it shows diversity of perspectives will vary. So that's 
Um, that's where you see some of those differences come out. And then on the descriptive versus normative question, um, again, historical critical approaches are the most purely descriptive. Um, and they're, you know, often focused on just trying to show what did different people in Israelite society think or do at specific points um, and, and rarely moving beyond that. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, you have approaches like the canonical approach, which says that uh, that the Old Testament was received as canonical scripture by a community. And so it seeks to see how does the Old Testament speak to that community as God's word today. Or the um, approaches that are grounded in, in the biblical account of Israel's history, um, they'll take a, a little bit different approach toward normativity, but they're seeking to see how the biblical story shapes us as God's people today. Yeah, so um, in thinking about these different approaches, um, it'd be maybe helpful to step back and and talk about how uh, Old Testament theology or biblical theology more broadly as a discipline developed. I don't know if you could speak to the his, that historical development of it. It partly de depends on how you define it. So in a certain sense, biblical theology is already happening within the Old Testament as later texts use earlier texts and say as New Testament texts refer to Old Testament texts. Uh, but biblical theology as a discipline is usually dated to a speech by a guy named Gobbler several centuries ago. And what was driving him was all of this division between theologians. And he wanted to use biblical theology, a more historically based approach to theology, as a way to bring theologians together and come to the right answer, in a sense. And in retrospect, it failed miserably for that goal because we have our book where all these different approaches. And so biblical theology itself uh, has become very diverse. And so instead of solving systematic theologians' problems, it's just created, in a sense, all these other approaches. And so um, over the centuries since Gobbler, it's splintered into a, a variety of different approaches, um, which are what we categorize in the book. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because... Um you know, that idea of like, well, if we just describe the Bible, you know, that can serve as a foundation for, or, uh, you know, a thing separate to the more normative claims. Yeah, it really ignores the fact that how you go about describing something already has embedded assumptions in it and a perspective in it. Like, are you going to describe things in relation to some unity? Because you have a kind of bias toward seeing all the threads connecting or... Um, on the other hand, a bias toward seeing absolutely conflicting views in the Bible. I mean, those those seemingly like objective, descriptive stances have a lot of assumptions baked into them. Yeah. In the introduction to our book, we have a series of what we call flashpoints, uh, things that differ between the different approaches. So some we've already mentioned, but some are, are slightly different. Degree of unity, connection with the New Testament significance of the interpreter's context, descriptive versus prescriptive, theology, history, method, structure, all of these things vary uh, depending on which Old Testament theologian you're reading. Yeah, what, what are some examples of biblical theology that you found, you've found helpful, maybe regarding a particular theme or subject or approach? Yeah, for me, looking at our book, each of the chapters, each of the approaches is helpful for me in some particular way. Um, so I'm not sure I would say some are not helpful, but one that I found really helpful is the history chapter. So in my context, growing up, 
theology was more static. Like you describe God acting in God is these things, but that the history of how we learn about who God is through his actions feels somewhat different. And I think really life-giving in a variety of ways. So Exodus as a primary example, God rescues Israel out of Egypt and having that be the foundation for um, various parts of Old Testament theology is this really helpful for me um, reading the Bible and thinking about contemporary issues and so on. Of course, there's drawbacks to this because much of the Old Testament is not history. And so if you focus solely on history, then you have to figure out what to do with, say, Proverbs and so on. And so there's some definite drawbacks to it, but I think it's a really helpful approach in many ways. Yeah. yeah I mean, that was the classic um, issue with von Rod's approach initially, and he he kind of had to come back to wisdom literature and say, oh, I got to we got to incorporate this somehow. Um, I mean, that's a simplification, but um, yeah. So um, also one of the biggest challenges in biblical theology that you've already highlighted is, is the relationship between the old and new testaments. So you note um, as an example, that the caution that uh, John Goldingay urges before rushing to think, for instance, that the serpent in the, the garden is, Satan, even though the New Testament seems to make that connection. So are there fruitful ways of grappling with the tensions between the two Testaments? Yeah, I think I would advocate for something like a double reading. Um, So first reading the Old Testament on its own terms uh, and trying to discern how the original audience might have understood it as best we can in their context, and then reading it in light of the New Testament. So when we look at that um, passage that you just mentioned, um, how might the original audience have understood the serpent? I'm guessing as some kind of a chaos creature. Um, and, And I think they probably would have looked for a more immediate fulfillment of the promise that Eve's descendant would bruise or crush the serpent's head. Um, And so Eve may have uh, hoped that her firstborn son, Cain, would be a fulfillment of that promise when she said, I brought forth a man with the help of the Lord. Now, obviously, (laughs) it didn't quite work out that way. Um, but maybe we could see little f fulfillments of that promise in biblical characters who followed God. Um, But then, of course, from the perspective of the New Testament, the big F fulfillment of that promise is in Jesus, who who conquered the powers of sin and death uh, through his death and resurrection. Uh, And as you said, the New Testament does seem to identify the serpent as Satan. And so I think we want to see that, too. So I think when we too quickly read the Old Testament uh, in light of the new, then we fail to see the development in God's promises and plan of redemption. And we miss how his words and his actions functioned in their original context. Um, I think we need to see that the Old Testament has an integrity in and of itself as a testimony to God's relationship with Israel. And we can learn from that as God's people today. But uh, for Christian readers, we also want to see Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament. Yeah, and it seems like that seeing the Old Testament in its own terms also is fruitful for dialogue between Jewish and Christian interpreters. So so I, I think sometimes, you know, thinking in my context growing up, there was this idea that like, you're crazy not to see this fulfilled in Jesus, right? Like, how could you not? And 
to to recognize there's an integrity within the Hebrew Bible that that lends itself to plausible explanations that don't always culminate in Christ. And so on that note, what what are some of the uh, contributions of Jewish scholars to the work of biblical theology? Yeah, this is one of the, the funnest chapters for me to write on the Jewish approaches. By the way, for those of you who want to do a little redaction criticism, you can try and figure out which chapters Brittany and I wrote. So I wrote the Jewish one, and then we stay in the book. I wrote the historical critical one, and she wrote the history chapter, and then all you readers can try and figure out based on that who wrote the rest. Uh, but yeah, the Jewish scholars, uh, it, they present fascinating uh, interpretations and methods that often don't get looked at when we study Old Testament theology, um, partly because the Jewish scholars don't think they're doing Old Testament theology. So this is one of the debates is within those circles, are they doing Old Testament theology at all? Are we doing biblical theology? And so there's a, a lively debate um, back and forth with that. Uh, but in a variety of other areas, uh, for example, specific topics that are important in a Jewish context that aren't as much in a Protestant context, such as land or law, uh, they receive uh, more attention uh, by Jewish scholars. Uh, there's been some fascinating work on theology after the Shoah, after the Holocaust. How how do we talk about God when something like the Holocaust has happened? Uh, so that is some really interesting material as well. And just in general, how we approach diversity. So the one of the flashpoints is diversity. Do we focus on diversity, unity? The Jewish scholars universally pretty much focus on diversity and all these different strands and not necessarily trying to harmonize them, but seeing how they relate to each other and so on. And uh, I find that just a really interesting and helpful approach to see them um, separately before we try to harmonize them. And so that diversity part, I think, is a really big contribution of the Jewish scholars. Why do you think Jewish scholarship sees diversity more than your average Christian interpreter might? There's a variety of reasons. I mean, one of the main ones is historically that diversity has been emphasized. Uh, so you can think about the, the standard rabbinic Bible from the Middle Ages with the, the biblical text in the middle and then a variety of commentaries surrounding it that often don't agree with each other. And so this is not the kind of study Bible that would sell well in a Protestant context. Like we, there's biblical text and then one set of notes. You don't have five sets of notes to disagree. Uh, and so there's just something in that Jewish uh, history of interpretation that values that diversity. Hmm. Yeah, you're, you're convicting me. I'm writing study notes right now for a, um, a Bible and uh I'm the only one assigned to this particular books, and and maybe I need to to bring in uh, you know four or five contrary voices. <laughs> it would it'd be uh, the problem is they want you to be really concise, you know, so it doesn't lend itself to that sort of range of opinion. Um, yeah, and I think you mentioned attention to certain themes like law, but I think it's also the maybe a more positive portrait of law. Because I think in, in biblical theologies, you know, Christians sometimes still want to see law as a foil uh, to the gospel. Um, and, and that's, of course, going to affect the way you describe what's going on in the text. Brittany, I wonder if we could just switch gears for a moment. And I want to talk about your book in Isaiah. 
you know, you've written this book called Lengthening Your Tent Cords, The Metaphorical World of Israel's Household in the Book of Isaiah. And um, so I'm wondering if you could just talk about what it is you're doing in this book and how interpreters of scripture have, you know, you, you focus on metaphor, how they've misunderstood or uh, understood uh, metaphor and its contributions to biblical studies. Yeah. Uh, so in this book, which is my published dissertation, I look at metaphors deriving from the realm of household relationships um, that are used to describe Israel and Zion in the book of Isaiah. So Israel as children and servant and Zion as daughter, wife and mother. And I think there are a lot of ways that um, that interpreters have un have misunderstood metaphor or not not quite grasped it um, in its completeness. I think this is changing, but one tendency has been to reduce metaphor to a propositional statement. So God is a rock means that He provides firm support or something. Uh, and this is where I think um, scholars who have worked in metaphor theory can help us. Like Paul Ricoeur talks about how metaphors uh, reveal a world um, and they invite readers to, uh, to see something as something else. And that then becomes this process of constructing the meaning of the metaphor. And, uh, and so we have to... We have to use our imagination and our feeling to recognize the full impact of the metaphor. And it's an open-ended process. Metaphors are, are intended to be generative, um, so we don't want to close off that meaning. So I think that's one way. I think sometimes uh, we fail to recognize metaphors that are there in the text. Um, so this isn't in Isaiah, but as one example... After I had done this work on Isaiah and, and spent so much time looking at daughter Zion, uh, Lady Zion, uh, then I looked at Psalm 137, which is an imprecatory psalm about Babylon. And in verse 9, it says, Blessed are those, or blessed is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rock. And the your in that passage, your infants, is feminine singular. Um, so it's not talking about the literal infants of the Babylonians for which we would expect a masculine plural your, but the metaphorical infants of Lady Babylon, who is personified as a daughter in the prior verse. And so I think sometimes we tend to, to miss metaphors that are in the text. And, and as we are more attentive to them, then we start recognizing them in other places. Um, and then one, I think one last thing, say a couple things here in relation to the marriage metaphor. Um, I think sometimes interpreters have tended to read metaphors bi-directionally. Come back to that in a second. And have also failed to consider how metaphors interact both with one another and with the concrete realities they're portraying. So in the marriage metaphor, some interpreters have argued that particular judgments that God enacts against Lady Zion, his wife Zion, uh, legitimate spousal abuse today. And I think that 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 fails to recognize that, first of all, that metaphors are actually unidirectional, as like uh, George Lakoff and Mark Turner argue, uh, associations from the source domain, in this case, a husband-wife relationship, are mapped onto the target domain but then we can't go backward and say that the portrait of God's marriage relationship with Lady Zion tells us what human marriages should look like. 
So God as a rock doesn't tell us what rocks are like. Yeah. So you can't, you can't kind of reverse engineer uh, a metaphor to figure out a social reality or uh, anything that's like advocated at the social level. Right. Right. And the God uh, has the right to judge Zion, not because he's her husband. If you look at legal texts, um, husbands don't have that right. Uh, in the Old Testament, but he he derives that right from his role as cosmic judge. And then some of the judgments that are portrayed come not from punishments for adultery, but from the covenant curses or the realities of warfare. So there's all these things happening together that we have to take into consideration. Yeah, that's really helpful. Because um, I know that's that's often a concern in prophetic texts in particular is the way that imagery could be taken up or seen to legitimate certain um, yeah behaviors against women um, against children or whomever so so I think I think it's useful to to explore the um, function of metaphors at that level and and um, you also said something about metaphors as a way of seeing the world as opposed to just literary flourish or something like that you know adding some spice to the content you want to deliver. Um, so I'm just curious if, if in your, you know, stepping back, you're theologizing um, as you think about your relationship with God and, and your view of the world. Are, are there, do you see certain metaphors taking a central role for you? Um, I think the metaphor of God as father has been pretty significant for me. I had a close relationship with my dad. Uh, he died several years ago, but I, I think it's it's easy for me to see um, God as a protector, provider, comforter through the metaphor of God as Father. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the primary yeah. metaphor. No, that's thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm wondering if you could um, unpack a little bit more that your thesis about the centrality of familial metaphors in Isaiah and. And also you bring in the servant as well. So if you're thinking about a family, you've got uh, a child-parent-child relationship going on in Isaiah. You mentioned the spousal relationship with Zion, between Yahweh and Zion. And then the servant theme sneaks in later in the book. So what's going on in Isaiah with those metaphors? Yeah. So, I mean, in the in the Old Testament world, the Beit Av, the household of the father, would include servants as well as uh, family members. Um, well, I, these images are found scattered throughout the book. Um, and one of the central concerns of Isaiah is to present Israel with a choice. So at the beginning of the book, Israel has turned away from God. And the question is, are they going to continue on that path? Or are they going to repent and turn back to God and take part in his, um, his glorious redemption of Zion? So God promises he's going to bring a purifying judgment Upon the city, Zion will be redeemed, but um, only those who repent will be redeemed along with her. And there's a lot of metaphors that are used throughout the book to convey that choice in different ways. But household relational metaphors, I think, are are really significant in that. Um, and so Zion is portrayed as a daughter, I think, as God's daughter. So he uh, eventually will come to her rescue as her 
as her parent. Um, or from the perspective of the marriage metaphor, he divorces her during exile, Isaiah 50, but he will uh, come back to the city, remarry her with an eternal covenant in Isaiah 54. Um, but the people of, of Israel have been his rebellious children um, in chapter one. Um, and in toward the end of the book, there's a lament in Isaiah 63 and 64 where the people call on God to act as their father. They repeat this again and again. But he uh, responds, I think, in, in Isaiah 65 and 66 and reiterates that only those who act as his servants will take will experience the deliverance and take part in this glorious future and receive an inheritance in the new Zion and uh, a new creation. And, and then his servants are also connected with Zion's rebirthed children in chapter 66. So at the core of Isaiah, we have these relationships between Israel and God, between Zion and God, and these uh, household metaphors help to show what those relationships should look like. I'm wondering you know, what your book contributes toward an understanding, uh, you know, you've touched on this already, but of the the gendered rhetoric in the prophets more broadly, uh, you know, like on, on page 191, you talk about the shift uh, toward Zion when it's clear that the people uh, need saving that they can't enact themselves. So there's an, an assumption there of like, I don't know if you'd say like a woman who needs saving. And, and so there's cert certain... I know we said we can't re reverse engineer, but there, there do seem to be certain gendered assumptions built into these metaphors. So I'm wondering how you navigated some of that. Yeah, so the, so the metaphors are based on associated commonplaces uh, in ancient Israel. And so Israel's assumptions about gender are driving what metaphors are used and how they function. Um, so we may have different assumptions about gender now, uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't understand the metaphors that they used and why they used them. So you do have in Isaiah, so starting in Isaiah 41, Israel is portrayed as God's servant. God calls the servant to be a light to the nations, but Israel is a blind servant, so they can't fulfill that role. And so then eventually it becomes clear that they're, that they can't do this on their own. They need saving uh, themselves. And so then you see this emergence of an individual servant who is Israel, but also has a role to Israel in Isaiah 49. And so I, I take that as, uh, as seeing that this servant is the righteous remnant that has now been reduced to a remnant of one. And so through the servant's uh, faithfulness to God and vicarious suffering, uh, he will bear the sins of many and make the many righteous. And then in chapter 54, after right after the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 54, you see the emergence for the first time of plural servants who, uh, who are those who have followed in the wake of the individual servant. Um, so not all Israel will be restored as God's servant, only those who... Uh, who follow the individual servant. And so as this individual servant emerges in chapter 59 or chapter 49, um, then we also see a shift from male servant Israel to female Lady Zion. So when Israel 
can't save itself, then there's the shift to this damsel in distress of Lady Zion, who who is portrayed as a daughter or a, a wife whose husband has abandoned her or a mother whose children are gone. And so all of those images highlight her vulnerability and helplessness. And so she needs to be saved by God and his male agent, the servant. But then you also see some... There are some places in Isaiah where these gendered assumptions are maybe um, not exactly overturned, but challenged slightly, where you see, for example, God portrayed um, with female images, or where you see Zion called in chapter 52 to rise up and loose the chains from her neck. Yeah, um, that's that's really helpful. Um, I'm reminded of a conversation I was having recently with a student about the implications of metaphors for God for our thinking about what pronouns to use for God. Do you have any thoughts on like how you move from the diversity of metaphors we have for God to whether we should refer to God as he or she or alternate between or just avoid it altogether? (laughs) Those are tricky waters. I think I'm going to make it somewhat unhappy no matter what I say. I mean, I don't have a strong feeling about pronouns, but I follow biblical convention of using male pronouns when I talk about God. But I do think it's very important. I think it's easy when there are a number of male gendered uh, metaphors used for God and when female or when not female, when male pronouns are used in scripture for God, get this idea that God is male. And that I think is deeply harmful and has been used in many ways to demean women. And so I think we have to recognize that that there are female images for God in Isaiah. God's portrayed as a mother, I think as a midwife, um, as a woman in labor. And these help us to recognize that male and female together uh, are needed to image God properly. God created man and woman in His image, and we're we're missing something if we if we only focus on those male images. And I think part of the, I mean, looking at ancient Israelite culture, which was male dominant, if you're looking for metaphors to portray a sovereign God, it makes sense that you look for male images of king or husband in that culture. Um, but God has compassion like the compassion of a mother. Um, and, you know, we have to see that side too. Yeah. Yeah. It's really helpful. Um, so I, I don't have a full speed round prepared for both you because I, I wanted to talk about your individual books as well as the one you've co-authored together. But I do have to ask if, if what you think is the most important book in, the, in biblical studies in the last 50 years. So I'm just curious if both of you could answer that. Charlie, I'll, I'll pick on you first. I don't know. That's that's really hard, right? Um, You've got about uh, two thousand choices behind you. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Von Rods, but I suppose he's outside the the fifty year uh, limit. Okay, reprint um, edition. Yeah, there you go. Reprint. Um, <laughs> which which Von Rod? The Old Testament theology. Um, I mean, it's still such an important book to this day. Um, and just the, the fascinating context of how he wrote it in, uh, he's teaching in Nazi Germany and just, yeah, just had such a profound influence in so many ways. Yeah, yeah, there, it, it is a, a really fascinating context. Was he at the University of Vienna, was that right? Where he's writing like during um, 
you know, um, when they cut the whole Jewish studies department and everything. And he's... You remember stories about the confessing church, like sending students to his school so that he could still have classes to teach and things like that. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, Brittany, what do you think? This is just a really hard question. <laughs> yeah. And I think that... Um, it's reductive. I, it's harsh. You're leaving people it, out, but but please, right, you know, that, go yeah, for that's it. The, that's the tricky thing. And also, I think as the field has moved into so many different regions, I, I think it's harder now for one book to um, have a wide influence over the whole academy. So I'm also going to just slightly move outside the 50-year range and say Child's Biblical Theology in Crisis, which was published in 1970. Okay. We, we've had Child's recommended, but not that one in particular. So, yeah. I think yeah. it was really instrumental in opening the door to a lot of synchronic approaches. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. And and what uh, what's one idea in biblical studies, Charlie, that you think needs to die I mean, maybe something like the the main goal of studying the Old Testament is to figure out the composition history, and once we figure that out, then we're done. Um, like that, that's interesting of itself. But there's so much more um, that that could be done, and um, yeah, let's leave it that. You know, a lot of people built their career on that, so I think um, <clears throat> it's a little harsh. Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, Brittany. What do you think? I think the idea that we can be objective, context-free interpreters needs to die. I think we all are interpreting from our contexts, and sometimes, um, especially this is challenging for non-Western or non-white scholars, where it can feel like there's, you know, biblical theology and biblical interpretation, and then there's Latino interpretation or <laughs> Asian interpretation. And I think we need to recognize that all of us Euro-American scholars are also operating from our own context. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay, well, thanks for that quick speed round. Um, Charlie, I want to talk to you about your book, God, Genocide, and Biblical Interpretation. And sorry, the full title is The Destruction of the Canaanites, God, Genocide, and Biblical Interpretations, published this year. And um, what were you doing in this book or not doing? Yeah, the goal of this book is similar to the Old Testament theology book in some ways. There's a lot written on this topic uh, about God being violent and the Canaanites in particular. And so I wanted to be able to have an entry point. And so this book is just a really short comes in at 93 pages. It's a helpful way to introduce people to all the literature. So it's designed primarily for students, um, members of churches, but then also for scholars in other fields who just don't have the time to read the hundreds and hundreds of pages of things coming out. I, I think all, all those books that are said to be for students are just as useful for scholars because, you know, as if we're all beyond that. <laughs> no, it's really a really helpful book. Sorry, what were you going to say? Yeah, so what, what it's not doing is I'm not presenting my own view. I'm not defending a view. I think the most controversial part of the book will be that I don't tell people what to think. I'm not telling people this is the best view and so on. I critique everything, which I suppose makes me just sound grouchy because uh, there's no view that comes unscathed in the book, including things that I actually believe. Uh, and so um, I'm not defending a point per se. Uh, I think at this point in my career, I'm not sure I could write something on this topic that 
has a whole lot that's new. Uh, I, I think eventually, someday I might come to that point. The, the Old Testament theology book is kind of part of a bigger project of delving into Old Testament theology and now delving into divine violence, maybe someday writing a book on a biblical theology of divine violence or something like that. But I'm, I'm nowhere near being ready to write that yet. Well, and you're, you're also, you know, you've written that large book on warfare in the ancient Near East where you've kind of mapped the field. So you've done a lot of mapping in your scholarly career so far. And is that, I mean, it, it, that takes a special skill set. So I'm wondering if you could talk about what it is that you are able to do that doesn't, you know, you don't seem to have this sort of impulse to just drive forward a thesis all the time. You're happy to to map the field and sort of let that sit there for people. Yeah, it's probably partly skill set. I'm, I'm very organized. I can read a lot and uh, help people understand what I just read. Um, so that's that's part of it. Pers- partly personality-wise, I'm I'm slow to push forward an idea. I'd rather have a conversation about things. So I think there's a variety of things um, happening there, and I I, I kind of rather just be in the background and help other people with their ideas and polish things and um, so on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm slow to, to put forward new ideas and it kind of annoys students in my classes sometimes too, that I don't tell them the answer all the time. Um, but I think that's partly it's good pedagogy, partly it's just personality as well. I, I think it's also an example of like an approach to being a scholar that, that helps other people and empowers other people. Because you're, uh, you know, trying to empower people to think through issues without saying, "Okay, here's the model that I'm going to try to steer you toward." Uh, so I think I think that's really needed, and and I think just for our listeners too to think about, like, I talked about this with Carol Newsom about different ways of being a scholar. A lot of us come into grad level studies or, um, you know, our doctoral programs or early career with a certain vision in mind of like what a scholar looks like. And usually that's not us. Like, so we have, um, you know, the imposter syndrome because here's the vision of a scholar. They can quote from all the primary sources in the original language, uh, you know, at the, a moment's notice. And I can't do that. So I'm, I feel like a fraud, but uh, you know, there are different ways of going about our scholarship. Some people are mapping the field. Some people are, you know, having a creative insight regarding a particular book, but they're not sort of versed in all the relevant literature and so on. Some people are more polymathic, but don't have the creative insights. And so I I think it's useful to think about what kind of scholars we are and, and just to own that, move into that. Um, not to say you couldn't do those other things too. Um, could you talk about the the concept of moral injury? I thought this was inter- uh, interesting and probably a new idea for our listeners. Yeah, this is something that Brad Kelly has been working on bringing into the field of biblical studies. Uh, and it's, it's really helpful. Uh, he defines moral injury as a non-physical wound that results from the violation of a person's core moral beliefs by oneself or others. So kind of the obvious example would be in wartime, if you're a soldier and your officer tells you to go to a village and kill everyone there. Like, so do you obey orders and kill civilians or how do, how do you process this? Um, and so it's not that you got a wounded leg, but your morals have been injured. 
And so I brought it into my book in the sense of we serve a God and then this God does unexpected things. And so it looks like he commands the destruction of the Canaanites. And so is, is that going to injure our morals? Like how do we process following a God who commands such things? So is it kind of the, the moral injury to the reader that you're concerned about? Yeah, that's how I'm using the idea here is, are we potentially damaging ourselves by following a God like this? And of course, depending on which view out of the four that I present um, that you take, you might say yes or no and so on. But moral injury is also helpful for thinking through about how to heal from it. And so there's a, a variety of things like a community where you bring people together and you, you talk about these experiences and you don't just try and do things by yourself. And so drawing on some of those insights, I think, could be helpful in this situation as well. So I, I want to talk about some of the different approaches that you're grappling with in the book regarding the ethics of violence and the conquest story. So um, one of them is reevaluating the Old Testament as a faithful record. So some interpreters would look at the Bible and say, you know, I think this is is not a, a, a good record of what actually happened. And that sort of alleviates the concerns over its violence. Like if the conquest didn't actually happen, then all right, I feel better about it. Some say that that Israel just misunderstood the commands that God gave. And I'm wondering if if you think that, um, you know, what are the benefits and drawbacks of that approach? And, and for some people, we have to sort of read those stories against the backdrop of the Gospels and use that to evaluate the faithfulness of a given record, say, in the book of Joshua. So, you know, does Jesus help us get out of the uh, dilemma of violence in a book like Joshua? What do you think? Yeah, the approach of saying Jesus is nonviolent and then using that as a window to help us understand who God is uh, I think is a really interesting one. Uh, so Eric Seibert and Greg Boyd um, in particular both employ this. And so they use that as the foundation for saying, okay, God is nonviolent because Jesus is nonviolent. Therefore, all the violent texts in the Old Testament, we have to cut out in some way, either just cut them out literally or explain in some way that disconnects God from the violence. Mm -hmm. and, and what are some of the drawbacks of that approach? There's a variety of drawbacks. Um, is Jesus actually nonviolent? Uh, so even in the Gospels, there's some texts that might cast some doubt on it. And of course, Revelation, the first and second coming distinction, some of those questions, as well as when you look at, say, speeches in the book of Acts and the Gospels, there's no sense of Jesus and the apostles condemning those violent things. Um, so the, the whole paradigm, I think, might have some problems. And also, if you want to go to a place like Greg Boyd does and keep the stories but reject God's hand in it, then it, it brings you to some odd places. So, for example, Boyd says the 10th plague is actually demonic. Uh, this is a, a demon that God allows to roam Egypt. Or the Ark of the Covenant is also demonic um, when violence is connected to it. So it, it feels um, like you're going against the text in some pretty significant ways. Yeah. Um, and, and also, does it really alleviate 
the moral challenges by saying God allowed a demon to carry out these atrocities. It's uh, you're you're still left with a pretty significant problem. Um, so the other another approach you talk about is stories aren't as violent as they appear. So what are some of the ways that interpreters try to mitigate the violence of texts like Joshua? Yeah, one of the major ways is hyperbole. And so they read the stories in the Old Testament and they say, well, let's read these stories just like other stories like this in the ancient Near East are read. So they look at other warfare texts and they see a lot of hyperbole. Uh, and that's definitely the case. Uh, there's a variety of pretty clear cases where hyperbole is employed. And so these scholars would say, if you just read the text correctly uh, in their ancient Near Eastern context, then they're just normal military battles or something along those lines. And so there is no ethical problem as long as you're reading it correctly. Yeah. And, um, you know, you've done a lot of study in normal military battles. Um, do they, do you think they really take off the ethical pressure? I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, they're right about hyperbole being everywhere, but it's a double-edged sword as well. Cause if you're going to defend the ethics of the old Testament, then you're also going to need to defend the ethics of, say, Ashurbanipal Paul and Ramses II and other kings who did some pretty horrible things at times. And so it, is there a sense of um, you know, defending too much? And you also have the problem of just changing the ethical issue. And so, for example, you could say, well, it's not genocide. All they're doing is removing, banishing the Canaanites from the land. Well, in modern terms, that would be ethnic cleansing, which is also a moral problem for most people. And so you, you've switched one ethical problem for another one. Yeah, when I was reading that, too, I was thinking about, um, you know, the Trail of Tears and, and how um, there was also widespread suicide among a lot of Native Americans because they would rather die than be displaced from their land. So... Um, and it was tied up in the horrors of that displacement itself. So I think there's, yeah, sometimes an assumption, I've been guilty of this, of thinking that displacement is at least better than uh, extermination, but that's another form of extermination. And so, um, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't relieve all the, all the concerns around that. Um, and, and then there's um, arguments that try to morally justify the conquest. And so, for instance, you know, some people might say that um, the Canaanites were pretty horrendous. You know, they were sacrificing kids left, right, and center, and, um, you know, really uh, heinous crimes they were committing and so on, and that justifies the conquest. So what are, what are um, some of the other ways people try to morally justify the conquest, and, and what are some of the drawbacks to that approach? Yeah, the focus here is defending that one particular act of violence. So so as I say, this is not a precedent. We're not saying so you should always act. But for that one time, that was ethically justified. So as you mentioned, sinfulness of the Canaanites would be one. Another one that's often talked about is uh, the parallel with, say, Exodus and the flood or eschatology, um, the idea of the eschatological judgment that all humans deserve breaking into history in a limited way, in a sense. And so showing parallels in the, the broader narrative of what God is doing in the world, of God fighting injustice and so on, um, to show the 
ethics of um, what's happening here. It, what would you say to a, a Christian who, let's say you're doing a, um, you're teaching a class on it or, you know, teaching at a church and you're talking about the, the challenge, ethical challenges of the Bible. And they're like, I just don't see the problem. It's not a big deal. What, what, what what's your approach with that kind of um, response? Yeah, my approach is kind of what you just did a few minutes ago is I have them think about contemporary genocides. Uh, so in one of my classes, I actually used to have them do a summary of the Wandan genocide, uh, just do some reading on it, summarize it, just to get a sense for like, w what is this ethical problem uh, that we're approaching. So that, that's one thing is to help us feel um, the destructiveness of genocide in contemporary terms. And then also just help us think through some of the dangers of the refusal to think about some of these ethical problems. Um, so mystery, sovereignty, I think, is ultimately where I end up. But to start there, I think, stops the conversation. You can't just begin the conversation by saying, yeah, whatever God does is good, and I'm just not going to think about it. Like That's not helpful for our relationship with God or faith and conversations with others. And so even though that might be the place that we end up, there's a variety of other things to work through before we get to that spot. Um, maybe unpack that a little bit more. So your, if your approach is to, I don't know if you would use the word relegate it to or um, kind of commit this to the mystery of God and God's sovereignty, um, what do you mean by that? And what do you not mean by uh, kind of putting this in that domain of mystery? Um, I mean, there's a certain sense where we are different than God. And so we should not expect to perfectly understand everything God does. So that's probably the, the heart of, of what I'm getting at. Um, the, the refusal of God to acquiesce to our demand that he explain everything. Um, thinking about Job and a variety of other things. You know, at the end of Job, God doesn't tell Job about Job chapter 1 and 2. And so there's, there's this sense of, uh, well, to, to trust God. At the same time, I, I don't want to just say, okay, um, whatever it seems like God's doing, I'm okay with it. Like it, there's an, an easy faith kind of thing that's also problematic. And so that's what worries me, the, the kind of person you were just describing that, that was that's what would worry me about someone like that yeah so you, you don't advocate cheap mystery <laughs> um but yeah but instead yeah. that kind of thicker notion of mystery um I, I had one particular question about the holy land thesis i've heard a lot of people argue that god needed to create a holy land um usually you know drawing on the holiness language related to the ark going around jericho and other sections of joshua uh, and therefore, Canaanites, Canaan's inhabitants needed to go to create the sacred space for God to dwell and for worship to take place. Um, I wonder if you had any thoughts on that thesis and whether it it does anything to contribute to our thinking about the morality of the conquest. Yeah, I think it, it definitely plays a role. Um, it, I think there used to be more of a thought the Canaanites were uniquely evil, and so this is why they were targeted. I think that's a pretty hard argument to make to say that they were worse than all of their neighbors. 
So that then raises the question of why the Canaanites? And so this particular proposal would show why that is. It's something about the land itself. Uh, and so sometimes this is tied up with the curse of Canaan uh, back in Genesis 9. Is there something about the, the action of what Canaan did in that that brings on the curse and is connected to the land? Did this originally belong to Israel? Or however it's framed, or as you mentioned, something about land itself being holy, a place of God's residence. Like it's this particular piece of land that God has given to Israel as part of God's plan for the world um, that all may know him. Uh, what I find when I talk about those, if people are skeptical about the destruction of the Canaanites, this generally doesn't help them feel better about it. So I think it's important theologically but not as helpful at kind of an, an emotional level of thinking through it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering too, Charlie, if you could talk about how this topic's touched you personally. Like what are some points of connection that you have with this subject and that led you to want to wrestle with this? Yes, it's always been a, a difficult issue. I've been interested in, in warfare for a long time and thinking about like what happens with warfare, how do we think about it, how do we process it as Christians. Now, one of the helpful parts about the moral injury approach is the appropriateness of lament, and uh, lament is something very underutilized in the, the Western church today. I think we need more of it, but especially here, I think reading these texts, we can lament them. We can come to God and say, I don't like these texts help me uh, to serve you still, even though I don't like them. The laments give us that pattern of complaints before God, leading to ultimately a statement of trust without the expectation that in the interim, God has explained it all to us. There's no explanation. Life hasn't gotten better, but they lead us to that that place of trust. There's a, there's a great parallel as well in uh, in John, where Jesus preaches about eating my flesh and drink my blood and large numbers of people leave, and he turns to the disciples, and he says to them, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, well, you have the words of life. And I think the subtext there is, I don't like what you just said. I don't understand it. I kind of wish you had said something different, but you have the words of life. And, and for me, I think that encapsulates my approach where I, I kind of wish these texts were written differently, um, but the God has the words of life, and I'm going to keep on following him. There's a variety of potential answers to address this. Uh, I have thoughts about which which ones might be the best answers, but ultimately it's about following God who who has the words of life, even though I don't have all the answers to the, the issues um, as I follow him. Um, Brittany, I'm wondering if, if you have anything you want to add on this topic of violence in the Bible. We did discuss that a little bit with regard to prophetic rhetoric. Is there anything else you wanted to add in here? Uh, yeah, I, I think I've mostly approached this topic in terms of the prophets and especially metaphorical um, depictions of violence. And like in the metaphor, I wrote a paper on Yahweh as jealous husband, um, which is what I was drawing on a little bit earlier. Um, but I just, I do think this is such an important issue and that as you were talking about someone who might not see the problem here, I think I w would challenge students if we don't, if we're not bothered by these texts, maybe we haven't read them closely enough. And I think we do, they should make us uncomfortable. But then I think 
I would follow Charlie's approach and say that ultimately we just need to bring that to God and, and we, we might not have the answers. Yeah. As I, I say, and I got this from one of my professors, you know, you sort of put it in the big pile of texts that you <laughs> either wish were different or don't understand. And uh, it's okay to have that, that pile and still follow God. Um, well, I, I want to just thank both of you so much for taking the time to speak about your shared work together on biblical theology, which is a, a fantastic book and I hope a, a good resource, um, and your individual work as well in Isaiah, Brittany, and Charlie on uh, violence in the conquest story. So uh, thanks so much for speaking with OnScript today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Matt. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.